listeners, I'm Sarah. And I'm McBad. Welcome to Shifting Gears, where we explore research perspectives that go against the grain. In this episode, we're talking about the utilization of genetics to help classify different organisms. Genetics has been an incredible tool for modern science. Taxonomy, or systematics, is just one field where we've seen huge increases in knowledge with the introduction of genetic techniques. This episode's podcast guest employs genetics in his work on taxonomy. I'm Felix Sperling. I'm a professor in biological sciences. Dr. Sperling started his career as an undergraduate student at the University of Alberta, earning a degree in zoology. He completed his master's here as well, in entomology, followed by a PhD at Cornell, a postdoc at the University of Ottawa, and a position as an assistant professor at UC Berkeley. Then, in 1999... Well, I took the opportunity to go to a much more livable place, which is Alberta. (laughs) And uh, I've been here ever since, starting as an associate professor and then becoming a full professor. Dr. Sperling describes himself as a systematist, someone who classifies organisms. He uses genetics to inform his classifications, which is known as phylogeny. Yeah, so taxonomy is about names, but names have to refer to a thing. But a thing is something that also exists in your head. And so delimiting that thing can be done in a great variety of ways, including how it looks, of course, and how it interacts with its environment, and what its relationships are to all of the other things that look just like it and seem to do the same thing in the environment. And that's phylogeny if you include genetic relationships as part of uh, what makes it what it is. And so Dr. Sperling sees his role as determining the species boundary, deciding how to classify different organisms using genetics to a large extent. Uh, What about the role of morphology, the outwardly visible physical traits of an organism? Do we need genetics if we have morphology? Morphology is really uh, the result of the interplay between genetics and the environment. And um, it's the part that we see in the organism, in this thing, this um, cute little big-eyed furry animal that we see in front of us, Uh, What we're not seeing very often is other aspects of the phenotype, such as physiology, and that all interacts with genetics. Genetics is so far also very limited in that we can only see the um, A's and C's and T's and, uh, and so on. We're still a long way from interpreting what that DNA code is actually producing that the environment um, is selecting on and that is interacting with the environment. So you need both, absolutely. And so I'm actually steering this a little bit more away from morphology only, but to phenotype. Mm -hmm. Phenotype includes behavior, as an example. There's lots of evidence that many aspects of behavior are genetically coded. So that means they're passed on from generation to generation. And yet you don't see it as morphology. So genetics makes it really fast and easy to get a lot of information about an organism. Information we can't necessarily see or otherwise physically experience. But Dr. Sperling cautions against blanket acceptance of genetic evidence. It's a little bit seductive in a way, because uh, here we are able to put it into a computer, uh, run it through our programs, and imagine that this is what the organism is all about. 
it's not the only thing the organism is all about. The organism is also all about how that genetic code interacts with the environment to produce something that you and I can see, as well as uh, something that is going to have long-term consequences that we often don't see. So what are the implications of that application of genetics? I've found that the implications exist at several levels. Initially, people were happy to point out that uh, there are all kinds of cryptic species, to point out that there are populations that look the same to our eyes. And remember, these are our eyes. We ourselves are filtering that information in very particular ways, uh, even just by the range of colors we see. And that was a little bit of an illusion, because underneath that, they're really, really different. That's fine, but as well, we see lots of things that are really, really different to our eyes that underneath, genetically, are really similar. What we don't know, because it takes a lot of observation, a lot of work, is how the environment really sees them. And that, of course, influences long-term selection pressures and the, the evolutionary trajectory of these populations. This brings us to the meat of this episode. How much weight should be given to genetics in taxonomy, or taxonomies developed solely through genetics, especially when there is more than just taxonomy at stake? For example, Dr. Sperling has performed genetic analyses on Lang's Metalmark, a butterfly in California that is considered endangered. This butterfly has been used as an umbrella species in efforts to protect its natural habitat, which has included the creation of the Antioch Dunes National Wildlife Refuge. Interestingly, while this butterfly has distinctive wing patterns, it is actually considered to be just a population of the Mormon Metalmark. Dr. Sperling's research has found that while there are some identifiable genetic differences, they really can't be considered separate species. Dr. Sperling suggests this must make us think about what we are trying to do when we attempt to protect a certain species. Should genetics determine how we value a species? Or should we have other considerations as well? I think this is a really good example for thinking about what our priorities are and thinking about are we protecting genetically distinctive things, in which case perhaps we should be looking at the bacteria or the fungi. But of course we can't see the bacteria and we can't see the fungi and we can't get um, popular support. You're not going to get a whole lot of volunteers going and sampling the fungi, unless they're mushrooms, or something like that. In other words, charismatic species, like pandas and so on, are uh, absolutely essential to conservation biology, because after all, what we're really preserving, I think, and the uh, Lang's metal mark, I think, makes that very clear, is something that we have chosen for our own reasons to value. It's a little bit like a heritage house. Why preserve this house and not this house? Well, this house happened to have Shakespeare living in it <laughs> so many hundred years ago. That's why we're preserving this one. It's a memory that means something to us. And we should perhaps be more open and honest about what we're doing in conservation biology as well. That is not at all incompatible with the idea that we're preserving habitats. We asked Dr. Sperling if he'd experienced much resistance to his genetic analysis from those seeking to protect the butterfly. 
Surprisingly, he hadn't, but he had noticed an alarming trend towards the use of this type of information to decrease protections for various species. Developers and their lawyers, he said, try to use information like this to suggest the species of interest is useless for conservation. Delimiting units is simply a convenient way of binning our, our um, perceptions so that we can efficiently communicate about them. So I think we need to address it very directly and be prepared ahead of time with arguments that point out that protecting something is not just about the underlying genetics. It's also about um, the things that we have chosen to value for reasons that are intrinsic to us. After all, um, your eyes, my eyes, see only certain kinds of things, and uh, what we can't see, we're not going to protect. That's one aspect of it. Another aspect of this is um, is a kind of a cultural touch uh, touchstone of sorts. It's a it's a thing that is tangible, that uh, means something to us in a sort of philosophical uh, cultural way, that is also very valuable. After all, religions are based on buildings and and artifacts that tie in as symbols to something else, something bigger. We asked if collaboration plays a role in furthering conservation goals, and Dr. Sperling described the role he has seen the Alberta Lepidopterists Guild play. This is a society of butterfly and moth enthusiasts. Lepidoptera being the insect order that contains butterflies and moths. Exactly. And the members come from all walks of life, working together for a common interest, organizing conferences, and writing definitive species descriptions. Dr. Sperling told us about one member in particular. Gary Anweiler, who retired a little bit early just so he could spend more time doing this kind of thing and has had a very large impact through the many species pages he's uh, written. And also he now does um, research monographs. Um, He's in the process of publishing one more on a particular group of not very spectacular moths, but something that is of, of serious importance. And so this is somebody who is actually kind of proud that, no, he has not had a very uh, long and strong academic background, but he's always been interested. And if we can draw in a lot more people like that, then that can only support environmental literacy, And that environmental literacy can only help to support much better long-term sustainable decisions about environmental policy. By the way, listeners, a monograph is a written study of a single topic or a specific aspect of that topic. So these would be very detailed reports about a butterfly or moth species. Now, in that vein of collaboration and encouraging non-scientists to become active in science, we asked Dr. Sperling about citizen science and related apps. E-Butterfly is a fine example. It started in Canada and has been adopted in the U.S. as well. In my opinion, the big frontier with all of those things lies not with the technology. Everybody's limping along trying to get a, you know, a, a good programmer to help them out. But such people exist, good programmers. It's a matter of just that They're paid so much more by industry, and so uh, getting them to volunteer their time can sometimes uh, be a challenge. But they're there, and they're very good, and they can solve the problems. But the real problems are social problems. 
And what I mean by that is there are such things as, I think of the uh, Tree of Life project, which is now largely sort of static and isn't going anywhere, which was going to give a giant tree of relationship for all organisms on the planet. And it was actually founded by a couple of Canadians who were at the University of Arizona at the time. And the reason it has foundered is they didn't manage to tap into a way of getting input from people. That's the challenge. The challenge is social engineering. It's obvious from recent social events, political events, this business about um, Cambridge Analytica. The origin of Facebook is another. These are people who have had a few aha insights as how to take our psychological predilections and use them to build something, maybe in directions that you or I might not want, but to build something that is uh, then also sustainable and money-making in, in many cases. That's the challenge. How will we do that in a way that helps the environment and helps preserving diversity? An example would be if Pokemon could have been such a craze, and still is for some people, why can't we do that for all the little mice and, and, and salamanders and butterflies that are in our backyard? Just a couple of weeks ago, for example, I saw a flying squirrel right in the center of campus. And it came soaring down, and I thought, what's that? There's a bird? No, it just landed on the tree. And it ran up the tree? Wow. And so I run over, have a look, and just to see a small flying squirrel disappearing into a nice little crevice. And, and I thought, wow, how cool is that? Here I've been on this campus uh, on and off with some gaps in there uh, for 43 years, and I've never seen this thing here. And how many people know this? And this is at least as cool as a Pokemon creature. I think this is a really important insight. I remember during the height of the Pokemon Go craze, seeing tons of zombie people walking around campus playing the game. It was noticeable because I guarantee the same people would not have been taking a casual stroll on campus on a Saturday morning, for example. But this app was able to get people interested in going outside and spending time looking for hidden creatures, let's say. If we can do something similar with citizen science, that would be incredibly powerful. Yeah, I agree. Now, there was one more thing we wanted to ask Dr. Sperling about, and that was his role as curator of the E.H. Strickland Entomological Museum. We had discovered that this museum is undergoing a major initiative to digitize the entire collection. Not only is this extremely valuable for research purposes at the University of Alberta, but it allows easy access to specimens for the public, and it opens more doors for larger collaborative efforts. Dr. Sperling described how this works. It makes the, the whole much greater than the sum of the parts. So we're part of a consortium called Canadensis. It's uh, organized out of the University of Montreal. An excellent botanist there. And Bruno has, uh, oh, long time ago, more than 10 years ago, set up a, um, a system whereby our data is pooled and it's part of something even bigger called GBIF, a Global Biodiversity Information Facility, which is a literally global inventory of museum specimens that you can go searching through and um, 
asking questions about. Uh, it's very much a work in progress, but in a sense, the journey rather than the end point is part of the value because it draws people in. So in this episode, we talked a lot about how we assign value to things and how we categorize things. Our categories can be useful for determining value, and genetics can be seen as a categorization tool. For a long time, we've used genetics as the final answer for tough questions, like where are species boundaries? But in conservation, we need to think more deeply about how we are categorizing and assigning value to organisms. Should genetics be the end of the line for species discussions, or should we use a more holistic approach? Whatever we choose, we need to communicate with the people who have assigned value to the species in question. Communication and collaboration will be key going forward in the conservation of these slightly less distinct species. That's our show. Thank you to Dr. Sperling, and thank you for listening.